Me Too is not a voice for working class women or immigrant women. And maybe, and here's uh, an optimism that I hold on to, maybe the next wave of feminism will be a coalition between working class women and immigrant Muslim women uh, because they're facing the same challenges. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Uh, listeners of our show may recall the clash between two of Western liberalism's most sacred cows that unfolded in France over 2020 as part of the so-called Affaire Mila. The 16-year-old online socialite was met with a ghastly downpour of abuse upon sharing on Instagram her dislike of Islamic mores. So far, so reprehensible, you may think. Except that Mila's impetuous words of blasphemy were soon invoked by hordes of anonymous users who subjected her to an open season of misogynistic and sexually predatory abuse, against which France's politically correct ethos, always mindful to eschew charges of Islamophobia, seemed despairingly unable to react. The affair captured Europe's uneasy balance between women's unfettered emancipation on one hand, as incarnated by the outspokenly feminist Mila, and on the other hand, the dissolvent forces of multiculturalism, which on the pretense of tolerance for the worldviews and lifestyles of Muslim immigrants, seems too willing to jeopardize the right of women to enjoy the sexual freedoms and gender equality that liberalism admittedly affords. Ayan Hersi Ali has lived and worked at the heart of this contradiction. Born in Somalia, she emigrated to the Netherlands, fleeing an arranged marriage, sat in the Dutch parliament, and pursues to this day her advocacy of women's rights and criticism of Islamic fundamentalism in the US, where she's a fellow at the Stanford-based Hoover Institution. Ayan's latest book, published in February, and the topic of today's conversation is Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. Ayan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me, Jorge. Great. Uh, well, I, I, I was hoping we could get started perhaps with just a general overview of the book. This, uh, this work of yours, Pray, has been the subject of an incredibly thorough uh, work of research into official data, crime statistics, personal testimonies that you've been sifting through for, for months, uh, that, and, and these all really unveil the link between immigration and a spike in sexual violence across Europe. Uh, can you briefly walk our audience through some of the main themes of the book, and uh, how do you reflect on its reception by the established media on, on both sides of the Atlantic? So I will start with an overview of what the book talks about. Uh, as the subtitle says, it is immigration, Islam, and the erosion of the rights of women um, over a period of a decade and a half, and also much longer, but the last decade and a half are of a big interest. We see a spike in sexual violence against women in the countries that took in large numbers of Muslim immigrants. Now, even before that decade and a half, the Muslim communities were dealing with, uh, as minorities, with this clash of values between, uh, and I'm just going to, in this conversation, limit myself to the position of women. Muslim minorities were dealing with the majority society in terms of the treatment of women. Um, Muslim girls are treated differently 
by their own families. They are required to uh, submit to a code of honor, honor and shame. And before I wrote this book, my activism was dedicated to exposing this code of honor and shame as it manifests itself in within immigrant minority communities. Fast forward in 2015, there is this outrage. This is the end of 2015, 2016. This outrage of an event that happens in Cologne, Germany. And I think this particular event captures the, um, when it comes to the clash of values between uh, the European attitudes towards women's emancipation and that of uh, Arab Muslim societies. In Cologne, on New Year's Eve, um, women and men obviously went out to celebrate the coming new year. And at some point, a number of German women found themselves surrounded by men from the Middle East, from uh, North Africa and other places. And these women were subjected to what is called taharush. Taharush means the rape game. So uh, men encircle their victim and they try to grope and harass and eventually rape their victims. And all of that happened. And this was an event so big that the German media could not pretend it wasn't happening. They had to report. And the German law enforcement and political leadership were confronted with this event and what to do about it. What then follows tells you exactly where things are at, which is uh, all the attempts were made to cover up, to say, you know, this is something, uh, sexual violence is universal. It's something that all men are guilty of. Uh, basically, the European authorities and media tried to explain this away as something that has nothing to do with culture, nothing to do with immigrants, with a particular culture or religion. And it backfired and it backfired badly. Now, before that, I was hearing stories. Uh, there were concerts in Sweden, in the UK, in France. There were all sorts of confrontations where women go out to have fun, to jog, to work, to live life as they're used to in Europe. And they were being confronted with um, sexual harassment. And the harassment, it, it, it could start in a verbal way where they just have obscenities hurled at them. But then it morphs into physical, the groping, uh, and, and then it gets worse uh, all the way to rapes. And I thought, look, someone should actually address this. This is something that's, it's a very interesting development. Uh, these men in the past who were seen to be subjugating only their community women are now spreading to women all across. And the answers I got were, there is no academic who's going to touch this. Almost every journalist who has reported on this issue has been demoted or bypassed or some sort of subtle punishment has happened. And there is no punish, there's no political leader who is going to expose this or take it on or address it because that could, could mean the end of your political career. 
And so as this uh, erosion of women's rights unfolds in Europe, the leadership is hiding. And, and, and that really is the sad story of what's happening. Um, thank you, Ian. I, I, I want to go a bit further in, in this point you've made about how um, it's been very hard to talk about this issue. And when you've been working on this book with your team throughout the years, you have faced many strategies of obfuscation when you were trying to access the relevant data. And it seems that the various authorities were looking away from these issues. You describe, for example, how hard it was to pinpoint where in a German courthouse a hearing on sexual assaults committed by someone from an immigrant community would take place. You talked obviously about what happened in Cologne, but also what happened in Rotherham in the UK with the gang rapes, um, sorry, the rape gangs. Uh, and more generally, you even talk about how victims themselves are extremely uncomfortable when they are discussing what happened to them because they fear being labeled as, you know, Islamophobe or racist. I think we can all agree here that racism is a very vile thing. But how did Europeans come to sacrifice justice and the rights of women simply to dodge racism accusations? Is it largely because we don't want to give talking points to the far right or there's more to that maybe? Well, first, let's go through the methods of obfuscation, the attempts at obfuscation. Um, the first thing I did when I was gathering data for the book was to call the agencies, that's the ministries of justice, the ministries of the interior, who are supposed to gather the data on sexual violence and say, okay, can you give me the numbers? And how many of these uh, numbers that you have on the record are committed by immigrants? And the immediate answer was, we obviously do not collect data regarding people's ethnicity, religion, skin color, or other things. So you couldn't, from the official data, you simply could not answer the question, how much of the violence is to be attributed to immigrants? Because they said, we don't collect that data. The next step was then to start talking to uh, politicians and people in the civil service and say, could you help me answer this question? And what I found um, interesting was that most of the people who talked to me also asked for anonymity. So these are people who are highly placed officials who would, on any other subject, be very proud to have their names and faces tied to the problems that they're trying to resolve. Here, they all backed away and said, please don't use my name. Don't say that I talk to you. These are people in the police force. These are civil servants. These are politicians. And it's just that, you know, senior editors in uh, flagship um, media outlets, they just don't want their name and their face tied to exposing these stories. And then, of course, the victims, which is one thing that I really thought it's the victims telling their stories. That is always the most compelling testimony. And as you see in the book, I have got lots and lots of testimonies there. But these victims were also saying the same thing. You know, um, they, they were traumatized by the experience of the assault, uh, the rape that they survived, the gang rapes that they survived. But at the very end, they always insisted, I vote for a left-wing party. I'm not anti-immigrant. I'm not racist. I just want this abuse to stop. And then, of course, the courts, as, as you mentioned, uh, in some countries like Germany, it's almost impossible. It, it's, it's very, very, very difficult to get um, 
quality information of a trial that in any other country is just open. I mean, if you want to see somebody who robbed a bank and you want to follow that uh, trial, you get it with no problems at all. But when it is a sexual violence committed by an immigrant, um, suddenly, you know, all the data points disappear. Nobody wants to talk to you. The phone is hung on you. You're told to call again. It, it just, it became an ordeal just to get to the data. Now, it, it, the next question is then why is this? Why are the, this, why is this effort to, to hide this uh, and obscure it? Most of the time I was getting the answer that any kind of exposure of this problem will empower the far right and the populists. Well, I've got some news for you. This obfuscation is in fact empowering the wrong characters. It's empowering the far right, it's empowering the populists, it's empowering the Russian mischief makers uh, who don't care about accurate news and only are engaged in misinformation and have a vested interest in the social disintegration of many European countries. So by pretending that there's nothing going on, you're actually achieving the opposite of what you intended to achieve. Sure, and there's there's perhaps also another way that I think a lot of your uh, a lot of the criticism of your book on on sort of the, the progressive media doesn't really hold water uh, most of the time when um, in fact a, a big a big prong of the criticism um, essentially says that you know you're you're uh, essentializing uh, Muslim communities right just to employ a woke parlance here the um, the left leaning critics of of prey uh, you know decry uh, they decry the fact that you're um, you're employing these stereotypes uh, and and applying them to, uh, to to Muslim communities as being um, as having this sort of misogynistic prejudice ingrained in their social mores and, and having uh, and, and wanting to impress upon the wider society their their backward uh, gender roles. Right? Uh, the, the, your critics worry that the per perpetuation of these stereotypes in fact complicates the the very path to assimilation that you uphold. As the solution to um, uh, to cultural balkanization and to um, to the problems of multiculturalism, and, and I wonder how, how do you respond? Is this is this also an uh, an, uh, an issue where you think they've uh, they've got it wrong? Well, I think you have to look at who exactly is making these noises. Who are the people who are saying that by reporting on exposing the misconducts? perpetrated by some Muslim men, some immigrants, uh, against women in general, uh, that that uh, is in some way wrong. Who is making these, uh, who, who, who is presenting these so-called counter arguments? It's the Islamists and it's the multiculturalists. Now, the talking points of the Islamists, these are the people, uh, who have established an infrastructure all across Europe where they try and co-opt Muslim communities into their Islamist-driven agenda, they have these talking points. They don't want anybody in their way. They don't want anyone questioning them about their ideology or advancing their ideology. So they just have these talking points that anybody who's in their way must be guilty of some form of bigotry. Uh, they'll call you Islamophobic. They will say that you are giving um, uh, fuel to 
the far right and all the rest of it. And with them, they have uh, the useful idiots, the multiculturalists, the people who have uh, bought into the ideology of uh, postmodernist uh, philosophies. Multiculturalism is one of them, and it's very strong in Europe. But it's this idea that all cultures are equal, and the majority, even in a liberal society, has no right to impose its values of freedom and life um, and equality on minorities if those minorities based on their religion or culture reject the values. But then also that takes us straight to the question of what about the minorities within the minorities, such as women and children, who protects them and are they excluded from the national law and national constitution? They don't answer that. They simply throw out these talking points and say anybody who's, who disagrees with them is a racist and, and then they go after you as a person. There are attempts at defamation and smearing and uh, all sorts of ways of trying to, to literally shut down the debate. And I think Europe is suffering because of this, because they've given in to these two forces. The Islamists who are seeking to advance the Sharia agenda, Islamic law, as the law of the land, and the multiculturalists uh, who are doing everything they can to avoid these problems. And now we are paying the price heavily. Women are paying the price, Jewish minorities are paying the price, gays are paying the price, ex-Muslims like myself are paying the price. Society in its widest way is paying the price of this terrible failure of integration of Muslim minorities. And Ayan, shouldn't there be a source of optimism in the sense that European governments have supported of different NGOs, different organizations, who have been trying to integrate these different immigrants. Um, can you walk us through how what you call the integration industry has tried to help and succeeded or not in uh, facilitating this integration with assimilation in Europe? The integration industry is not helping. The integration industry, as the term suggests, are incredibly cynical. They want to make money. It's about making a profit. And in that sense, you don't want the problem to go away because if you solve the problem, and the problem is to ensure that immigrants learn the local language, that they get acquainted with the local values, that they understand the law, that they adhere to the law, that they find employment, gainful employment, that they pay their taxes, that they participate as much as possible in every realm of society. That's the definition of integration. And for those objectives to be achieved, I think it's much simpler than what the integration industry wants us to believe. I have talked to people within this integration industry who are saying, well, uh, it's wrong to demand that minorities integrate into the majority culture. They have the right to keep their own values. Well, if you are running an organization that says that it's dedicated to integrating minorities and you're taking taxpayer money, should you then at least not be doing what you said that you're doing? They're not doing that. And I think governments and citizens alike must demand that their taxpayer money not be given to the uh, integration industry. I think that serious reporters should in fact expose uh, the integration industry 
uh, you can go as far back as three or so decades to show that they have failed. Let's try something else. Sure, and uh, there seems to be another element of, of uh, that, that your critics put forth, uh, which is um, a, a tension they, they point to between your embrace of the open liberal society and your readiness and your readiness to to employ what they deem are illiberal means to protect the fundamental rights and liberties of Western women, right? And I, I wonder how do you navigate this paradox? It seems like you take the view that liberal society uh, ought to be defended, uh, even by means that. Uh, those who claim to be liberal may deem unsavory. How do you, how do you navigate this paradox? Well, you navigate it by showing that these are false equivalents. Uh, raping, groping, sexually harassing, making women unsafe in the public space, um, that you have, there is no other way of doing it than that the government um, enforces the rule of law and that women are safe in the public space. And in, in doing that, the government will have to use the tools, and these are legitimate because these governments are chosen, but the tools that it has to uphold the rule of law for women, for the Jewish minority, for homosexuals, uh, for people uh, seeking to express their views, uh, you know, the market of uh, free speech. So these are not illiberal ideas. The uh, actions, the steps that a legitimate government takes to uphold the rule of law, uh, that's not illiberal. That's a very, either a, a very poor understanding of how things work, or it's a sinister way of, again, trying to shut down debate. And I think I think um, one of the main arguments you seem to develop is for one of risk aversion. And you, you make the case that this is not the only issue women are facing in Europe, and there are many different issues that women are facing, but there is a specific problem coming from um, people from immigrant Muslim backgrounds who have a very different relationship to women and given the way immigration uh, flows from Africa and, and Middle East to Europe have happened over the past decades and will increase over the next decades, we should be looking forward to it. Um, I, do I don't you... think we're looking forward to it, but we should anticipate that there's going to be a rise in the problem of sexual violence as we've seen lately, and that will only get worse. I'm not saying we should be looking for no, 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 sorry, that was, that was a mistake on, on, on my part. But <laughs> what, what, what do you um, what do you make of the argument that this is a kind of very small aspect of the issue? And that um, we, you know, and you open in your introduction, actually talking about the, the mass rape of German women by the Soviet troops at the end of World War Two. Mm -hmm. Why should we focus specifically on this when the issue of sexual violence with women is much larger as the Me Too movement has showed us quite recently. So of course I get that question and, and the complexity that it bears. First of all, we are past the Second World War. So if you look at the history of European countries and in particular Northern European countries, there was a huge investment in what I call the civilization of the male. 
men in Europe have come, whether they like it or not, they've come to understand that women are equal, that they, uh, as individuals, not only have equal rights, but they have bodily integrity, they have their dignity, and it's to be respected. And those who violate those norms, they find themselves in trouble, not only with the law, but also socially. And I think here is where it starts to grind. The men who are coming from North Africa, the rest of Africa, from South Asia, from the Middle East, uh, who were born and raised in Muslim majority countries, they come to Europe with the attitudes toward women ingrained in them. And the attitude towards women is you divide women simply into the good and the bad, the modest and the immodest, the virtuous and the not virtuous. And the people, the women that you deem immodest, those are for the taking, their prey. And obviously in 2021, that attitude is going to clash with the prevailing attitude in Europe towards women, where women are seen as free and absolutely equal, uh, at least before the law to women, uh, to men. So first of all, there is that. Um, and then I think there's also, there's a class, there's a culture issue, which we've just talked about, and there's a class issue. And on the class issue, I've been very critical of the Me Too movement in the sense that when it exposed uh, male misconduct towards women, it seems and it seemed to serve only wealthy middle-class women. And it seems to go only after wealthy middle-class men. But a lot of the violence against women that we are seeing now is perpetrated by men of low education and low income. And a lot of that pain is felt by women of the working class levels. And for Me Too is not a voice for working class women or immigrant women. And maybe, and here's uh, an optimism that I hold on to, maybe, the next wave of feminism will be a coalition between working class women and immigrant Muslim women uh, because they're facing the same challenges. Sure. And if we if we try to charitably sum up uh, most of the kind of centrist uh, critique of your book, right, not going into the far the far left and what what uh, what their critique has been, but it seems like a lot of sort of old school liberals may uh, may agree with you on on uh, the actual uh, threat that, that unrestricted immigration could pose to, to women's uh, rights, but they worry that raising the alarm and raising the issue the way that you do in prey uh, brings with it um, you know downsides of its own that it stereotypes Muslim communities and that it, that it makes integration harder in, in the ways that we've just been discussing and and, and you you deal with with that counter argument very. Uh, very um, adeptly, and, and I, I just wanted to get, to get your sense on on where you see that uh, that, uh, that, that that how do you see that that argument playing out? It seems like you're, you know, you're you face up to it, and you you um uh, you 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 despite despite the stereotypes that your book can serve to foment, uh, you seem willing to pay the price of racism racism accusations if 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 it succeeds in raising the alarm, right? Uh, so do you do you? It seems like you're you're also very pessimist. It seems like you're uh, 
you, you expect the future to, to confirm your, your fears. Uh, is that a fair assessment? And how do you sort of trade the uh, alarms that you raise against the, uh, uh, the essentializing and the stereotype that your critics uh, um, attribute to, to, your, to, to your book? Well, first of all, what I say to any European who's interested in reading this book and listening to its arguments is that you have, um, uh, you know, the main, really the main alarm uh, that I'm raising is that uh, European societies face a social cohesion crisis. The number of Muslims, the number of Muslim immigrants that are not assimilated for whatever reason, some of them don't want to, some of them cannot, some of them don't understand why, that number is rising. The number of natives who have had enough of immigration, this is the uh, unplanned, um, you know, spontaneous immigration. The people who've had enough of that and its negative unintended consequences in Europe is growing. So there you have the makings of a collision between the host society and the minorities. And as long as you listen to these people, the multiculturalists and the Islamists who have different reasons for shutting down debate and they come up with these talking points about essentializing this and essentializing that, that's all just noise, it's nonsense. I think what European leaders should really be looking at now and in the coming years is how to sustain what is left of social cohesion so that different groups are not suspicious of one another. There is a large and growing underclass of minorities in Europe. They've come with a religion that is alien to European values. The um, conflict and the collision between this Islamist culture and European culture is something that's been manifesting itself for decades now. Seeing it in some countries like France, they're just in a huge state of crisis right now. And so is Sweden. And really, so is Germany. And even in the UK, you see and hear people saying, this just can't go on. And if you take that into account, this is things as they are right now. And then you anticipate the what I call in the book push factors, people in North Africa, South Asia, the Middle East who are young and who feel compelled to leave their place of birth and come to Europe. Most of them will be young men because it really is only young men who can endure the trek. So you look at this problem from any side and you can see it's going to grow in numbers. You are getting a demography of young men, the, the rise of intolerance, uh, that is whether it's far right or populist that's growing in Europe. And this is the kind of problem that in a few years could go completely out of control. And I think that is what the European leadership should be thinking about and not waste time on these um, you know, phrases like essentializing this and essentializing that. It's, it, it, that's really a waste of time. And we've wasted quite a bit of time in the last few years. You quote the, this is the last question by the way, um, 
You quote the American intellectual Thomas Sowell, who argues that the speed with which immigrants integrate in society depends on whether they perceive the surrounding culture as desirable or undesirable. Does Europe have too much self-doubt and guilt to be desirable at this point? Um, this is a case that Douglas Murray makes in his uh, Strange Death of Europe, that it isn't just immigrants who don't believe in Europe anymore, it is about Europeans who don't believe in Europe. Do you feel there's something true about this analysis? I want to say so far it has been true, yes. Um, so Thomas Sowell's point, you know, if the surroundings are seen to be desirable, then in that sense, I think that Europeans have failed in marketing what right about Europe. The only thing that seems to be desirable to immigrants, whether they are in Europe or they intend to come to Europe, is the welfare state. It is this idea that you can go to a place and you don't have to work and food, shelter, medicine, education will all be for free and the government is going to take care of it. That seems to be the only thing that's desirable about Europe to many immigrants, not all, but to many immigrants. For the immigrants for whom that's not desirable, what you see is they're trying to make their way to America or Australia or Canada or some other place that makes an appeal on more than just having the doll. So it's really sad that Europe has presented itself as a place that you come to for free things, but it hasn't presented itself as a place where you come to for its superior values. So in that sense, yes, Douglas Murray is right when he sees, you know, it is the strange death of Europe. Uh, it, it, a country that doesn't defend, a society that doesn't defend its women and children is a society that is ready to fade, that would be the word. Well, that's a very, um, a very ominous place to end the, the conversation, but we've, uh, we've uh, very exhaustively covered most of the, the themes of the book and we'd really encourage folks to, to pick up a copy and, uh, and, and really get stuck in it. And, and we're so thankful, Ian, that you've uh, built yourself and thanks so much for, for walking us through what, it, what, is, what has already been a very provocative book. And thanks so much for, uh, for talking to us. Thank you so much. And I hope that you don't see this as, uh, as pessimistic. I really think, please let it be sort of a turning around and mm. have these conversations and defend the rights of our women and children. So, uh, I am here to see Ali Zhao. Uh, what do you think of this episode, Francois? Wow, it's a tough, tough book. Um, I recommend people give it a, a read, but it's not light reading at all. Um, going through all these different cases of sexual violence across Europe, um, first of all, is, is heart-wrenching, all these personal anecdotes. But then also there's kind of this deep discomfort of um, when you read this book because implications are just so unsettling for you know um, open-minded liberals which the vast majority of Europeans are which is well people come with different cultures and sometimes that integration assimilation can be very complicated especially on the issues of the way they interact with with women I think one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode is there's an important um, uh, trial going on right now in France because there was a young young girl, she was 17 when it happened, 
who was streaming, you know, as, as young people do these days, she was streaming and one um, one guy started saying, uh, started flirting very aggressively with her. And she said, she said she was a lesbian. And then he started insulting her because she was a lesbian. Um, uh, because, you know, saying it was a uh, haram in the Quran and all of that. So, you know, pretty aggressive stuff. And then she came back saying, Islam is a shit religion, uh, screw Muhammad, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty aggressive comebacks too. As a result of that, she has been hounded on the internet for the past year. She has had to leave her city uh, because she was no longer safe there. She is living under a secret identity. She had to change school again because she was threatened again where she was. Um, and when she goes on TV now, her face is modified digitally so people can't recognize her in the street. Um, all of that because she insulted Islam and you have all these people who consider her to be kind of a legitimate target. And I think this is one of the many examples of how feminist organizations who are supposed to be on the forefront of, you no, know, she's a young lesbian woman, 17, um, non-easy time um, when you're a teen to navigate all these issues, but especially when you're threatened and, and hounded. And all these feminist organizations, well, not all of them, but a fair share of them have remained eerily silent on this because they are extremely uncomfortable with it. And again, it touches a lot on what Ian Hitsi Ali says, which is a lot of these feminist, uh, liberal feminist organizations do not want to touch this issue of different relationships to women from people coming with a um, you know, more conservative Islamic um, background. And it's a huge issue for Europe to for the years to come. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, one, one uh, kind of a, Standing question that that I think uh, creeps up across mo most of the uh, the issues that we that we discussed is whether there's anything you can do about it and whether you can condition uh, entry into Europe on you know clean slate of you know uh, respectful dealings with with women and and I think that we the 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 other thing that becomes clear from reading Ian's book is that it's an, an incredibly thorny issue to to tackle from a from a purely you know uh, immigration law perspective right you can you can hardly there there's very little that is known about um the, the people that come and seek an asylum when they claim when they file a claim for asylum there there's already very little that, that we can know and in fact most of the many of them in fact have sort of scant uh documents and and sometimes the the, the ones that they do have and, and present are are forged or fake and so there, there's very little that European governments and the wider sort of EU system can do to make sure that the, the people who we are uh, given asylum or at least giving the um, discretionary right to, uh, to remain in Europe whilst their claims are being adjudicated. There's very little we can do to condition that on, on, a, on, a, you know, on an upstanding record of, of you know, of, um, sort of, uh, you know, relations to the other, to the other gender. And, and when, when cases like this do occur, uh, I think when, what, what Ayan uh, Hirsi Ali is drawing attention to is that the establishment, be it in the media and sort of the cultural institutions and, and unfortunately across most of the governments, whether, whether from the center right or the center left, the, the, the reality is that we're, we've been you know, woefully um, uh, unreactive. We, we've, you know, we, we know, and, and there, was, there was a major media storm around this when uh, the sort of the serial... Uh, rapes happen in, on New Year's Eve in Cologne in 2015. We know that uh, that, that that there's a clear correlation between uh, you know 
any major influx of, of immigration from from, uh, from these Muslim majority countries and you know instances of of uh, aggressive sexual behavior and, and predatory sexual behavior. We know that these things go go hand in hand most of the time, and yet we we eschew any sort of action because we are fearful of stereotyping Muslims as a whole as as a sort of as a retrograde population. And as we as I think we're you know granted we we should be uh, we should be um, eschewing those, those sorts of uh, broad categorizations, but when cases do occur, the, the past few years show that we've been willfully unable to, to react against them, and, and that we, quite simply, the establishment just is, is, as you said, is very, very angsty and very skittish to, uh, to, to uh, deal with these issues head on. And obviously, uh, you know, Ion's, uh, Ion Hirsi Ali's background makes her obviously, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a um, legitimate. You know, voice to, to raise concerns about this, having fled a, um, a very repressive sort of environment and having converted out of, or, or at least having um, shed her her um, her uh, Islamic faith uh, that she was that she was brought up in, and and um, so I think it, it makes for, as you said, a very, very chilling read. It's a very uh, disheartening book. Uh, it's also an incredible work of uh, you know thorough research. She really went deep into the records of police departments, government agencies across Europe. She really did, you know, the heavy leg work of, of uh, you know, gathering all this data from, from, from several yeah, countries. It's, it's a book, it's a book within the book, I think, for work she's done and the, all the different um, roadblocks she had along the way um, definitely are a book within the book. And um, to circle back to the question of immigration, I mean, e- even if we... Um, decided uh, overnight that um, governments decided to overnight to curtail immigration. I'd be very, very surprised to see um, the governments winning a decisive victory over judges because the judges on this um, make very make things very complicated for national government, both European and national judges, for national government to uh, cut down on immigration. But what interests me is beyond the question of immigration, within our societies, we know this. To some extent, Ayn um, Hirsi is very courageous in voicing it, but we we know this because she gives a lot of very interesting uh, in, uh, data and information. Uh, but we've been adjusting to it. I, I want to give this example from this French feminist called Caroline de Haas. She's one of the, kind of very famous one. She's being paid a lot of money by different um, companies and and public sector um, to do training sessions on on, on sexism. And she was invited to come and talk about, there was an issue in northern Paris where a lot of these groups of young men were um, harassing women in the street, even sexually harassing women in the street. And it was becoming a big controversy in Paris. And her solution was, well, I think the main issue is this issue of city planning. The issue is the pavement in Paris is too small. We should really focus on increasing the size of the pavement. First of all, what's quite amusing is she spends all of her days, as you know, many of her uh, colleagues making those wide generalizations about patriarchy and and sexual violence, and when she's confronted with very blatant and, and obvious patriarchal and sexual violence, um, she kind of steps away from the issue to become very technocratic. So first of all, that fact that is amusing. But what it says is, as a society, we are accepting that this will be increasing an issue, and we are mitigating it. But like with global warming, more and more we are accepting it's going to happen. We're looking at ways we can mitigate the, the consequences. So Hitsili says the 
there's been a development, a massive development of the past few years of anti-rape, anti-trousers, pat, um, anti-rape trousers, essentially to, to protect women if they are attacked. Um, she says there's an increase of gender segregated pools across Europe because it allows men and women to not see each other and, and swim peacefully in swimming pools. Um, all these different examples show that we know that this is happening. Uh, we know which neighborhoods we can no longer go to where young men, women can't really go in skirts anymore. All these things we know, and we are accepting it. We are mitigating it rather than actually dealing with a, with a root consequence of root causes, which is um, not assimilating people to the way things are done in Europe, where there's a, a lot for men and women to um, to do mostly what they desire with some constraints. Exactly, and the. the... The alarming thing, I think the, the sort of the, the unintended consequence of focusing on these blatant cases of, of sexual violence and sort of, you know, open air and, and sort of, you know, sort of out in the air of cases of, of abuse, whether whether those be, you know, verbal or physical, the, the unintended consequence is that we tend to overlook the softer nature of, of uh, you know, the, the sort of the backsliding in uh, sexual and uh, sort of uh, societal mores and habits. I mean, you've got a lot of cases also, I think, in countries like Sweden, but also France. You've got cases of, you know, villages where, where a lot of these migrants and refugees are, are sent to resettle. Uh, you've got cases where, um, where a, lot, a lot of these uh, refugees are able, or, or migrants are able to change, for instance, rules in, in public spaces, whether, whether they be, for instance, swimming pools where they're, they're uncomfortable with having uh, you know, men and women swimming, uh, swimming or using using these public spaces at the same time, and so they segregate uh, the genders uh, to to um, uh, to, um, uh, to 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 sort of to 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 fit this this uh, you know this this totally different uh, uh, you know culture and 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 again it doesn't it doesn't necessarily take the sort of the, the violent manifestations of, of retrograde uh, gender roles for this to, 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 to be a problem. And it can, it can be a, a softer and a, and, a, and a slower pace of, of backsliding for, yep. for, uh, for this to really, to really be alarming. And, and I think that she, she draws a lot of attention. I, I, I want to finish on a note to my um, American friends who, with a lot of compassion, have been very sorry to what happened in, in Europe um, over the terrorist attacks. And especially in France, and there's always been a bit of a definitely sorry for what's going on. It is atrocious, but after a few minutes and maybe a few drinks, they all end up saying, "Well, you know, do you really need to do cartoons of Mohammed, or do you really need a, um, uh, a law on the burqa? Um, you know, isn't this kind of use, useless provocation? Isn't this kind of anti-liberal?" And when I read this book, I want to I want I want to show them this book, saying, "Okay." Let's say let's say we give up the cartoons on, on, on Charlie Hebdo uh, from Charlie Hebdo. Let's say we give up on the burqa. Do you think it's gonna everything's gonna be fine? What about segregated pools? Are you okay with it? What about um uh, what about history classes where we can't have a proper conversation about what happened in Auschwitz? Are you okay with that? What about excision, which Einhard Sili talks a lot about, and uh, fe- sorry, excision, uh, female genital mut- uh, mutilation (FGM). Um, there's been a lot of that rising in Europe over the past few years. What do we do about this? The question is, there's a bit of a naive understanding in, in, in America, which is, well, you know, if, if a French were a, a bit less provocative and a bit less racist, it will be fine. That's not true. There's a real issue of assimilation. And the question is, you want to make compromises to maintain social peace. 
I understand um, it is the American way in many ways, and that's completely fine. The question is, how far are you willing to compromise? The idea that you do one compromise and then it's over is not true. There will be more compromises along the way, and the question is, where do you draw the line? And I think that's something I think my my American friends need to be aware of uh, and keep in mind when they talk about what's going on in, 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 in France on the question of uh, integration. Absolutely. And with that, uh, we, we hope to see you at, uh, at our future episode. And thanks so much for listening to this one with uh, I Am Here Seattle. See you next week.